0: Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. This podcast is funded by listeners like you through Patreon. We want to take a minute to thank all of our donors. We would not be able to produce this podcast or maintain the free resources on our website without you. So even if you can donate just $1 a month, that helps. And if you donate at least $5 per month, you'll gain access to exclusive content each month this helps us keep the science of learning accessible. So you can consider supporting us at www.patreon.com slash learning scientists. You all really make a difference and we appreciate you. This episode's featured patron is Cynthia Bendett. After working in a law firm as a legal assistant, she has now been involved with adult education for 23 years. Currently, she is an instructor at Bow Valley College in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Cynthia says that when she began instructing adults, she didn't know anything about adult education theories or the best practices to teach adults. She just taught from the heart. She completed her master's online in 2016 and this opened her eyes to adult education and in January 2019 she stumbled upon the book powerful teaching unleash the science of learning which in turn led her to the learning scientists so for Cynthia 2019 was all about learning what the science of learning was about and in 2020 she's been incorporating the principles of the science of learning in her adult education courses she says it has been challenging coming up with new ways to engage her students and each time she teaches, she does something different because her goal is for her adult learners to retain information longer. So thank you so much, Cynthia, and we wish you the best of luck. Hi, this is Dr. Megan Samaraki, a professor at Rhode Island College, and I am recording this episode in April of 2020. So we are in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, And many of us are pivoting to distance learning just at the drop of a hat. And what this looks like depends on a lot of factors related to to our students and the structure of our schools or institutes of higher education. So what are the age of our learners? Are we talking about very young children, children who maybe can take a little bit more responsibility, children who are a bit older? Are we talking about adult learners, traditional college students, non-traditional college students, first-generation students? All of this really, really matters and makes a difference for how we how we transition and how we turn this semester into a fully distance semester. Uh, what type of um, devices do the students have at home, and how many people are sharing those devices who <laughs> need it for learning, for work, or both? How many of our students have access to consistent and reliable Wi-Fi? What's being required of us by our school districts or our institutes of higher education? What are new policies that are coming out and how much support are we getting? Were our students um, just kicked out of the dorms for for college students that are more traditional? What does their home situation look like? Are they in the same time zones or are they spread out throughout the country or throughout the world? The list really just goes on and on, and I have to say, it's been challenging, um, to say the least, and much harder than I thought it would be, even though I've taught hybrid classes before, and I think some of this has to do with the fact that my students are really in distress, and there's a lot of different circumstances that they are dealing with that are are very difficult. For example, some of them have children in the K-12 through system and are Needing to spend a fair amount of their day helping their children learn, which takes away from their ability to work on their own schoolwork. Um, what does, you know, are they working? Some of my students are working a ton extra because they are first responders. Some of my students have, have lost their jobs. They're trying to take care of their parents, their grandparents, maybe other relatives, their own children. Um, they, they there's just a lot a lot going on and then addition I think some of it has to do with if I'm being honest just the stress of the pandemic um, on me so personally I'm pregnant during this pandemic and that has come with different challenges so we as teachers have different like life circumstances that weigh on us and so there's just there's a really uh, there's a lot going on and so in this episode I just want to address some of the things that have been on my mind related to teaching in this environment. And in the show notes I'll link to some of the resources that I found that I've been using and of course we have a number of resources on our website learningscientist.org. So first I'm going to talk uh, briefly about some cool data that have come out about whether we should even return in the fall to -to face-to-face instruction and the interactions that college students have on campus. So of course, this is more related to college students than it is to K through 12. And K through 12 is gonna have, um, you know, different different things to consider, but I still think it's really interesting and I, I thought the data were cool. Um, so I'm going to talk a bit about that. And then I wanna talk about the various structures of distance learning that we might adopt and how this might impact metacognition and self-regulated learning. And then finally briefly some ways that the six strategies might be used to help with distance learning so first should we return to face and face to face-to-face instruction in the fall well for those of us who are teaching in higher education um, kim whedon and ben cornwell just posted a really interesting paper about whether universities should resume face-to-face instruction and i will attach a link to the pre-p- the preprint on open science framework and a twitter thread that Kim Whedon posted that summarizes the article, which I think is really cool. I do want to make a note about this preprint. It's on the Open Science Framework, and much like a lot of the data related to COVID-19, it's coming out before it's been peer reviewed. This This is important to understand because peer review is an essential process for us to make sure that everything has been vetted and that the authors have Considered all of the different ways that the data might be interpreted and any potential issues. This is important for everybody, but that process takes a really, really long time. It's an important one and it's rigorous, but it but it does take a long time. And so some of the data have been coming out in the in open science frameworks and other avenues related to COVID nineteen. Um, a lot of that having to do with with medical research, but. Um, We just need to understand that this is pre-peer review, not because the paper couldn't get through peer review, and it will go through peer review, I would assume, but because it's just, it's a long process. So we need to make sure that we understand that and that things could change. But the main summary of this paper is basically that while a small number of college students seem to be directly connected by sitting in the same class with somebody. So this means like student A is in class with student B. Nearly all students on campus are actually connected indirectly through a third student. So student A might sit next to student B, and then student B sits next to student C, and now A and C are actually connected. They've if they've both been exposed to student B, then they are connected indirectly. Um, And so they found that in a typical week, the average students share classes with more than 500 different students. And this doesn't even count additional contacts that they're going to have on campus, that's just in class. So this doesn't count contact in computer labs, which many students go to to print assignments or to do work, Um, libraries, lobbies or, or hallways waiting to visit faculty for office hours, Dining halls or cafes that students might visit in the middle of the day for lunch, and all of those places are areas where commuter students who are not living on campus may visit while they're while they're on campus for the day for their classes. When we start talking about campuses that are highly residential, there's going to be even more sort of cross contamination or, or contact. And so, given that almost all students are on campus are connected. It does seem like it's a it's a place where, if there were to be a couple of cases on campus, it would it would just spread very very quickly. So um, this is I thought that this was really interesting and something to consider. The authors also looked at whether or not you could try to limit the size of classes, and it seemed um, to them in their analysis that even saying classes could be no bigger than you know X number. say everything over a hundred would have to be distance, but smaller than that um, could meet face to face. You still end up with almost all of the students being connected indirectly. So this was really sobering for me um, and important to, I think, pay attention to and important more so for our administrators to pay attention to as they're making decisions about our campus communities. So with distance learning, um, and it seems like many schools may take up at least some form of additional distance learning in the fall 2020 semester. Um, I know I've heard of many schools saying that we should prepare for that very real possibility, even if it hasn't been officially decided or announced yet. And so so knowing this is coming um, with distance learning, self-regulated learning, and, and metacognition has become more essential than ever because students are really now guiding a lot of their own learning. And there are uh, a number of issues related to the structure of our distance learning that determine how much of that self-regulation is necessary. So distance learning can take a number of different forms with differing levels of structure. And I've personally grappled with this in my classes. So you could conduct a distance course completely synchronous which means that all of the students are coming together at the same time, presumably the same time they would have normally had class, and, and working together in a virtual classroom. So this might be holding Zoom meetings or holding you know, some other type of virtual meeting, maybe through, for example, a, a learning management system or a course management system, whatever the mechanism. Everybody's coming together at once to try to engage in classroom learning at the same time. And this is kind of trying to sort of mimic what a face-to-face class would be like where everyone comes together in the classroom. But it's not the same thing because you can't see students as easily um, through these videos. It's harder to get a, a sense of sort of how everybody's feeling and how everybody's doing and I know personally, if I, I've experienced with some of the synchronous sessions that I run, a lot of students don't want to turn their video on. And I think part of that could be because they don't want other students to see their living situation or there are other people in the room that need to be in the room because we're all um, we're all, you know, staying at home. Um, it also could just be that they just they just don't want their video on for whatever reason. and i I have a hard time making them because I know they didn't sign up for class this way. Um, so that's that's an issue, but even with everybody at a meeting with their videos on, it's still very difficult to see. You could also conduct a class completely asynchronous, which means you per, um, you post static content for the students, like videos, things to read. Um, assignments to do and they just do it completely on their own time whenever they want. You typically give them a certain time frame and they, they do it within that time frame. When I do this, I've been giving them work to do for the week and they just need to do it at some point. It doesn't really matter exactly when. Now this is nice because it gives them flexibility, but it also means that they really have to be good at time management And then there are hybrid versions of this, right? Where there's uh, maybe a small number of synchronous meetings, but a lot of the work that you give the students to do is asynchronous. And and I've grappled with this with my classes, because on the one hand, a synchronous class will help keep the students on track, and I can give them a, a common message and consistently reach out to them and have at least some interaction, even if it's not the same. But that also means that students have to be available at that exact time and our world has changed a lot, especially um, if students have kids at home who are also needing to do synchronous work for their K through 12 classes, or if they're sharing a device, or if now they're being asked to work many more hours because they're a first responder or working in a group home or what have you. Going to more asynchronous versions means that the students are sort of left to their own devices. Regardless, this involves a lot of self-regulated learning. So what is self-regulated learning and and what is metacognition? Self-regulated learning involves cognitive and motivational components and then requires strong metacognitive skills. And so metacognition is specifically about students' ability to monitor their own learning and then engage in control processes. So metacognitive monitoring is about making an assessment or sort of a judgment about what they understand and what they know and what they don't know and the likelihood that they'll be able to retain that information in the long run. And then control processes ideally would be taking appropriate steps to improve their learning or to maintain that learning based on that assessment that they've made. So monitoring and control sort of feed into one another. They figure out what they know and what they don't know and then based on that information, based on that assessment, they're doing something about it. Either just trying to maintain that learning if they feel pretty confident, or if they're feeling much less confident, they're doing something additional. Whether it be watching the video again, taking a break, and then taking a practice quiz, or reaching out to the instructor. And doing this is a lot harder when the students are not in front of you. So personally, when I teach my face-to-face classes, I can take a look at all of my students and sort of try to get a sense of what they're understanding and what they're not. And I can guide them and tell them, here are some things you need to consider. Here's here's the thing that's the most important. I can answer their specific questions in real time. I also often will ask my students in face-to-face on a scale of one to 10. One being I have no idea what this lady's talking about and 10 being I totally get it and I'm ready to move on how many of you are in the seven to 10 range? And I'll have them raise their hand. And I'm not worried about individual students necessarily, but just trying to get a sense of where we are as a class. And then I can say, okay, those of you that are in the four to six range, give me a little nod, give me a hand raise, and I can sort of get a sense. And then I use usually somewhat jokingly, but also to try to Try not to embarrass anybody. We'll say, you know, those of you that are in that one to three range, give me a look of desperation. And I usually can tell who those students are. And if there's a lot of confusion, if there's mostly four to six and a lot of one to threes, I can go back and I can stop and I can readjust, explain it again, give a new concrete example, and have them engage in some elaborative interrogation, you know, work in pairs for a little bit, try to figure it out, and then we'll come back together. If there's a fair number of students who understand, but a couple that are struggling, I invite them to come talk to me after class and we'll set up a time to talk. And so without that face-to-face interaction, it's a whole lot harder. Students are having to do that on their own. They're having to now say, okay, on a scale of one to 10, where am I? And then based on where they are, make a decision about what to do. Issues related to time management are going to play a role. So in order to appropriately engage in metacognitive processes, doing these assessments and then engaging in control, the students need to have enough time and they need to not wait until the last minute to do things, which is going to be very, very difficult. There's also issues related to cognitive load. So how much can they actually process at once? How much can they deal with? And frankly, how much sort of life stuff is getting in the way. Do they have the mental capacity to try to engage in in learning that is going to be difficult right now? And Jennifer McCabe just published a really great blog about metacognition and distance learning specific to this particular situation. It was published recently, and so I'll put a link to the show notes and she goes into all of these issues related to time management and cognitive load but because we are requiring our students to engage in more self-regulated learning we need to try to the best of our ability to instill some of these effective learning strategies into the course and try to make it such that they are using these strategies just by going through and completing the course so trying to infuse as much spacing and retrieval as we can for example. And so for the last bit of this episode, I'm gonna talk about some ways that I've been able to introduce the six strategies into distance learning. And then in addition, I'll provide a link um, in the show notes. The Chronicle on Higher Education has an article about five time-saving ways to teach online during COVID-19. And I think that those, those quick tips can be really helpful. So many of the six strategies for effective learning that we talk about on this podcast and that we have um, resources for on our website can be implemented into distance learning courses, whether we're doing the courses synchronously, asynchronously, or some hybrid format. So, for example... Spacing and retrieval can go together really well and can try to hold students accountable week for week and keep them checking in. It also allows you to sort of get a sense of how well they're doing and how well they're understanding things. Um, It gives them some extra points. So low stakes retrieval opportunities, but it's also going to help them learn in the long run. So using learning management systems like Blackboard or apps like Quizlet, um, uh, Quizlet, or um, there's a, a number of them. And I know that we have um, we have a digest that's a little bit older now, but of different ways to use technology for retrieval practice. And I'll I'll try to find that digest and post a link. But using those different types of apps or whatever system we have available, requiring students to do brief assessments, brief quizzes that are spaced out. Maybe they're doing one or two per week can really help keep the students on track and force them to engage in retrieval practice. It's a little trickier to do in a course management system than it is in person if you are trying to make sure that the students are retrieving as opposed to just looking up every single answer. But one way of of kind of getting around this is using multiple choice questions that are very applied. So uh, rather than having sort of fact-based questions that might have been fine when you were doing face-to-face, you could give them a little quiz in the classroom and force them to retrieve the answer or the definition of some term because you knew that they couldn't look it up because they're sitting right in front of you. Instead you might give them a little scenario and say which principle that we've discussed is relevant here. And they're not going to find that in their book or in the the video that you've posted or whatever. It's a very unique question because you've come up with a unique application. And so while it takes a little bit of time to create those, those can be really great questions um, to help students engage in retrieval practice. Even if they are looking up information, they still have to think and apply that information appropriately. And if you space these out over time so that they're doing small quizzes each week, that can be really effective. The same way that we would have done it in face-to-face, we just need to translate that to our course management system and just make sure that the questions that we're using require the students to really think about the answers. Interleaving can also be used within these quizzes. So the idea behind interleaving is sort of jumbling things up or mixing it up. The way, um, the way I do this is by mixing in older questions with the newer ones. This uh, produces spacing and interleaving together. So my students are not just only being quizzed each week on the information that was just presented in the lecture video, but they're also getting some older questions mixed in. And so there's interleaving going on, but then there's also spacing because they're revisiting content from two or three weeks ago as they're engaging in those quizzes. So those three, I think are actually um, some of the easiest to just quickly implement in a distance learning course. It might be too late to do that for the spring semester, but certainly as we're thinking about the summer or fall, if we end up in these distance learning scenarios, that can be a way to keep the students on track and to provide structure so that they have an assignment each week that they're supposed to do they're checking in, they're engaging with the course, but they're doing so in a way that can still be asynchronous. They don't all have to sit together at the exact same time to take the quizzes. So they can let it sort of flex to their schedule a bit. Dual coding is another one that can be implemented um, and is implemented a lot in distance learning. So dual coding is combining visual representations with verbal representations. And visual doesn't just mean pictures, but sort of any any representation that might be um, that just isn't specific words and so creating online videos that are short and to the point with some concrete examples can be a really great way to help students engage with dual coding you do want to be really careful about avoiding cognitive load Um, or cognitive overload when you're doing these videos. So if there's words on the screen and you're reading them and there's things popping up on the screen images, it might become too overwhelming and the students are not going to be able to process all of that information. You wanna try to avoid having students reading text while you're also talking. And so as uncomfortable as it can be when you're recording the videos, if you put text on the screen, pause and give the students a chance to read it. Or it might even be a good idea to just not put very much text on the screen at all. Just do a bulleted point. You can read that bullet and then elaborate verbally. And then trying um, to make sure that if you're putting visuals up on the screen like diagrams, you're giving the students enough time to walk it through you're maybe even taking your cursor and sort of pointing and walk, walking them through verbally so that they get that verbal explanation while they're getting the visual. And even reminding students in the video itself, if you're confused about this, stop, pause, go back one minute and rewatch this, giving them those cues to say, to, giving them cues so that they think to themselves, do I understand this? Should I go back or can I continue? And as you're recording the videos, if you keep reminding them to do this, that can help a lot. Elaboration can also be used. The way I do this is I provide my students with prompting questions to answer, and I I encourage them to answer them after the video um, or just right before an exam. I am still giving exams this semester because it was already built into my course, though I probably won't moving forward if we're fully distance. But giving them those prompting questions that ask them to describe or explain sort of through elaboration can be a good way to help them sort of test their own knowledge in a way or see if they're able to find the answers and and fully understand the concept. Um, You can also give them these prompting questions for online discussion boards and require participation. So this would be an asynchronous way to get students interacting with one another if the course management system that you're using has a discussion board or like a blog um, with the ability to comment function, you can post prompting questions and ask the students at some point during a specific day or at some point during the week to go on and see if they can describe and explain and engage in discussion with one another. And this can be looked at for participation and also help them stay connected. I've been doing this um, this semester with discussion boards and I've been really um, pleasantly surprised at how well the students have done at going online, posting and asking each other questions and just supporting one another and acknowledging that it's really hard, but that they're, they're thankful to have one another. And I think that helps with the, the human connection. And then finally, that sixth strategy is concrete examples. And so I think when we're recording online videos, We should still be including a number of concrete examples of the same, uh, of of abstract ideas, but you can also record very short videos that is literally just maybe one or two concrete examples about an idea and have those as add-on videos. Students do struggle to attend to longer lecture videos. And so uh, breaking it up into smaller pieces, having a main lecture, but then also having some add-ons that they can watch separately can be a good idea because that allows the students then later on, if they're not understanding an idea, rather than having to dive back into say a 30 minute or hour long lecture and not knowing exactly where to go, they can watch those smaller videos to try to reinforce their understanding or to try to, try to uh, see how well they're actually grasping the concept. So these are just some very brief ways that I've been thinking about how to use the six strategies with distance learning. Some of it has been pretty similar to what I was doing face to face with some modifications, while well, some of it is, is very different. Um, but, but in any case, ideally, helping the students engage with these strategies through the structure of the course will help them moving forward. The learning scientists, too, were also really big on small changes that can have a big impact. And we talk about the fact that major overhauls of courses may not be a re- realistic or possible and that making a number of small changes over time can be a really great way um, to to implement strategies within a course. But unfortunately, this major course overhaul is exactly what we're having to do right now with almost no, no advanced warning or time to do it. And so... Um, You know, before trying to do everything, before trying to completely redesign your course, remember that this is an emergency situation. It's not going to produce the most well-thought-out courses that were originally and carefully designed for distance learning. Designing a good distance course can take a really long time. At my institution, we've been told that ideally our courses that are fully distanced should only be 15 to 20 students, And ideally, we've dedicated a year to designing our courses and thinking through all of the components for distance learning. And that is just not the situation we're in. So of course, while I'm talking about these strategies and saying, here's some things you can do, here are some other things you can do. I think it's really important that we all continue to remember that this is extremely difficult. We are in A situation that feels basically impossible and that we should cut ourselves some slack and just do the best we can. And if we are um, in distance learning situations or for those of us who will be in distance learning situations in the fall, just try to take a couple of those things that seem like they'll work really well for your class do the best you can and we will continue to improve on them if we need to so that's been um, those are the things that have been on my mind this is the the learning scientist podcast covid edition and hopefully um, in future podcasts or other blogs we'll be able to dig into some of these some of these issues in more depth this episode is funded by listeners like you To support our work and gain access to exclusive content, visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash learningscientists.